Thank you, worship team. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I told Chris and Laurie, who uh, are both Naval Academy graduates, you've got to be tougher than the average cat to get on the front row on Easter Sunday morning. So we'll see how they survive the Naval Academy, see if they can survive this. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about the AIM of Easter, and I'm using AIM, A-I-M as an acronym, for the absolute irreducible minimum. And I would say that the truth that is the uh, absolute irreducible minimum of Easter is the fact that Christ died for our sins, but he isn't dead anymore. And because Jesus died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And since uh, the death rate, despite all the advances of modern science and medicine, and God bless all those researchers, the death rate's 100%. And as long as we have a 100% death rate and the depravity of humanity, we desperately need a Savior. Um, now, there is some misinformation about Easter that sometimes gets circulated this time of year. And so I gave you, I think it's on a blue sheet of paper, an insert. And I won't read all of it, but let me just assure you that uh, there's no reason to believe that the term Easter nor the celebration of Easter as a Christian holiday has anything to do with pagan religion. Um, the word Easter comes from a German term that means to rise has nothing to do with the goddess Ostar or Ishtar. But the first Easter, first Easter event, the actual resurrection, I mean by that the literal bodily supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ, took place on the Sunday after Passover in 33 AD. And because of that, because the resurrection took place on the first day of the week, Anthony, as opposed to the seventh day Sabbath, it almost immediately became Christianity's primary day for weekly worship and celebration of the resurrection by means of several things. We've got an early, late first century, early second century document, not scripture, called the Didache, that basically says on the Lord's Day on Sunday, not Saturday, the church would gather in different locales and focus on singing, sharing and prayer, scripture and supper the Lord's Supper, and beyond that, every Sunday, worship day, including in places where it's dangerous for Christians to gather and be that visible, because they could be rounded up, arrested, and or killed. Uh, in addition to that, by the late first century, by 95 AD or so, the Sunday after the Jewish Passover every year was recognized by a large section of the church as a special day of celebration of the resurrection. We celebrate it every day as believers anyway. Once a week we have a special day of celebration, first day of the week. And by around 95 AD, much of the church took the Sunday after pa Sunday after Passover as a special day. We would call it Easter now. Now it is true that some of the modern popular aspects of the superficial celebration of Easter did come from... Uh, cultural cultural traditions as opposed to biblical doctrine. However, rather than paganizing the church, the process was the church took these well-known symbols and baptized them, as you were, converted them to teach Christian principles. For example, the egg 
which was a common uh, fertility signal among pagan thinkers and a sign for good luck, in the Christian tradition was embraced as a, a physical object lesson of the Trinity. You've got one egg made up of shell, white, and yolk. That's not a perfect analogy, but that's the way they employed that. Uh, rabbits were fertility symbols among most ancient European pagans, but in Christianity, uh, the life that's represented there reminds us that all physical and ultimately spiritual life comes from God in accord with his program for salvation, which revolves around the resurrected Christ. Uh, now, since Easter isn't about the Easter bunny or Easter eggs or Easter baskets or Easter egg hunts or Easter bonnets, which are my personal favorite part of the Easter traditions, the Easter bonnets, and where are they out there anyway? Come on, we got to bring that one back. Uh, because those things are very superficial and have nothing to do with the core of the holiday. Uh, some Christians opt out of all that, and I totally respect that. But as uh, Romans 14 and 15 tell us on areas like that, where we hammer out our own personal convictions, uh, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. And uh, referring to myself in the third person, so I'm doing my Robert Dole impression here, um, some people opt out of that kind of stuff, and I get that, but others, including the pastor of TBF, don't mind having a little fun with the Easter Bunny, as long as it's not the core of our celebration, and as long as we center on what it actually signifies, which is the physical, supernatural, bodily resurrection of the one who died for our sins three days before. Uh, if you want more information on that, this is one of many articles I've found. Uh, if you go to Christianity Today and type in Easter is a pagan holiday or just do a Google search, you'll get a, a long article that kind of debunks some of the claims that are out there. But because we are going to have fun with the Easter bunny and Easter eggs in second hour, although that's not the reason we're here, um, let me warm up your capacity for abstract thought by sharing the Easter bunny's top five pet peeves. Now, I'm not going to waste your valuable time by going over all of this guy's pet peeves. He's got, you know, he's got some issues and he's got a lot of pet peeves. But these are the top five Easter Bunny pet peeves. Every year after Easter is over, he has to clean tons of jelly bean residue out of his huge bunny ears with expensive, painful to use, industrial strength, extra long Q-tips. And he doesn't like that. His high levels of stress leading up to Easter always causes his bright white tail to turn a sickly shade of gray. I made that one up all by myself. <laughs> all the fake news since last November are claiming that he's a secret agent of the candy industry. They've hacked his emails. Jealous Facebook posts from Santa Claus, Superman, and the Tooth Fairy claiming the vast majority of the kids of the world love them more. And that's just hurtful. That's hate speech. And the final one, after gaining 50-plus pounds the last few years, many people, including some of his close friends, mistake him for a giant sumo wrestler stuffed into an Easter bunny suit. You're welcome. Uh, let's uh, go from silly to serious. And uh, let's, let's pray for the teaching and the teacher today uh, that the Holy Spirit who inspired this text in Luke will illuminate to our hearts. And let's pray for those who protect and serve us 
uh, including our firefighters. There's a scene from 9-11 near Ground Zero, our peace officers, and our active military. Okay? And uh, Ron Miller, if you would, lead us in prayer in that direction. Okay? Thank you, Ron. We're going to spend uh, most of our time looking at a, just surveying briefly a pretty large passage in, in Luke. But as an introduction, kind of get up in a helicopter and look at the whole scene. Uh, let me uh, share something I've shared a couple times before. If you look at the, the events leading up to uh, Easter in the, in the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, uh, you see this. You see an evening meal, which was the Last Supper, which is the basis for the Lord's Supper. That would be the E part. Uh, a stands for arrest by the temple police at night in the Garden of Gethsemane, being led by Judas Iscariot. Uh, as sword play, uh, Peter pulls a sword and tries apparently to chop a guy's head off and just lops his ear off, which is, which Jesus immediately heals, which is the kind of thing you probably wouldn't make up if you're writing this 30 years after the fact. Uh, T stands for trials, uh, before Annas the high priest in cahoots with Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin, and then the Roman governor Pilate, who had capital uh, punishment power, uh, Herod, the local authority, and then Pilate again. And when you look at that, evening uh, meal, arrest, swordplay trials, execution, resurrection, let's change that second E from execution to expiation because you know execution is a general term. You could easily say, well, yeah, Jesus was just a, a virtuous martyr. He said some things that got the people in power upset, and when you speak truth to power, uh, you know, heads will roll. Uh, but Jesus' death was something he voluntarily chose to do. He says in John 10, no man takes my life. I lay it down and I will pick it back up. And uh, expiation is a theological term that means to wipe something clean. And the mess of my sin and yours was wiped clean by the work of Christ on the cross. And, uh, you know, Christ died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. His expiation was a one time for all substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, all of the Old Testament symbols of the uh, Levitical priesthood pointed to this one act. And so uh, there's the empty tomb. I would say the resurrection of Christ. I mean the literal bodily supernatural. You can't reproduce this in a laboratory. Sorry, Richard Dawkins. It was the ultimate miracle, but it actually happened. That miracle validates the saving work of Christ, and it proves that and if you're looking for someone to help you after you die and you are going to die, it'd probably be good to look at someone who's died and come out the other side. And not only was not a victim, he was actually the victor from beginning to end. So as I said, we're going to look at uh, a fairly large, or summarize a large portion of the book of Luke. But I wanted to show you what Luke says at the very beginning of his document. And you turn there earlier. I ask you to please turn to Luke 1. And I think this is context we need to keep in mind when we read a gospel like Luke. Luke says, inasmuch as many, he's not the first one to write a gospel when he writes his, have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us in and through the life of Jesus, just as those who from the beginning, talking about the apostles, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting to me as well having investigated everything. I'm convinced Luke had Matthew and Mark and probably some other written documents, and he went out of his way to do investigative journalism, as it were, to interview people that are quoted in Luke 
that aren't quoted anywhere else in the New Testament, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in logical order, most excellent Theophilus, the original reader, so that you might know the exact truth. I'm not making anything up here about the things you've been taught. So, from verse 1, chapter 1, flip back uh, to chapter 23, and let's summarize uh, a large portion of what Luke says about the death and resurrection of Christ. And I want us to start with verse 32 of chapter 23. So we're going to see the humility of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And let's start with the humility of Jesus, verses 32 through 38. And let me read it to you from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, we've had the uh, condemnation of Christ and the procession to the place of execution. And it's not just him, but two other people who are going to be executed this day. Two others also who were criminals were being led, being led away to be put to death with him, Christ. When they came to the place called the skull, or Golgotha was the original term, and Calvary is the Latin form of that, so they're all synonymous here, the place of the skull. Uh, there they crucified him, Jesus, and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is a special category of sin. They might have been vaporized immediately if he had not said that. Uh, but what the soldiers did do, the the execution squad, they cast lots. They were throwing dice to divide up Jesus' robe between them. And that was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. And the people, the bystanders, stood by looking on. And even the rulers of the Jews who had come set him up are now sneering at him, taking great pleasure in what they've done to him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, the Savior, uh, the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers on the execution squad, also mocked him, coming up to him, offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription written above him on the cross, This is the king of the Jews. Uh, we're told we have Jesus and two criminals. And that's the term used in Luke. Uh, some of the parallel statements in other Gospels use the term thieves. So we often talk about Jesus and the thieves on the cross, or the, or the thief on the cross who responds. Uh, but what you don't know, necessarily, is that he's executed between two thieves or criminals, but in fact these are much more than just your average uh, criminals or thieves. The Romans only crucified people found guilty of rebellion against Rome, people we'd call insurgents or terrorists today. They didn't crucify just thieves. They didn't crucify just criminals. They had other ways to deal with those people and dispose of them when they wanted to. But crucifixion was limited as an exquisitely horrific, visible torture to show the other people under the Roman thumb this is what happens to you if you rebel against us. And the carrying of the cross is significant in that vein because after a person would be found guilty by a Roman authority, in this case Pontius Pilate, of being a rebel against Rome, rather than just executing them, crucifying them just across the way there, they would force the condemned rebel 
to publicly submit to Roman authority by carrying their cross or dragging their cross to the place of execution. So when Jesus says to the 11 believing apostles, if you want to be a full-fledged disciple of mine, you've got to deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and keep on following me. What does taking up your cross mean? It means to visibly submit to an authority you had formerly rebelled against. In this case, the Romans are forcing the rebels to carry their own cross so that everybody in the area would see this is what happens to people who rebel against Rome. They're tortured, they're forced to submit anyway, and then they're crucified. Now, this is called the place of the skull. Now, there's some debate. Uh, many scholars believe that the uh, site of the execution, the crucifixion, was has now been covered up by a large church in the old city of Jerusalem called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But there is a landmark very close to where that's located that looks awfully lot an awfully lot like a skull to me. I actually took that picture, my own picture with my own camera there. I want to get all the extra credit I can get. And uh, but here's what you may not know, I'll say this briefly, but in the last couple hundred years, whether this is the exact site or not, and I think there's a good chance it is, that definitely looks like a skull. But here's what you don't know. Members of a rival religion to desecrate our site have put a bus terminal right in front of it. You can only get a side-on view. They've built a mosque next to it, and they put their graveyard on top of it. And one thing that the Israelis don't do, they don't desecrate other religions' sites, Christian or Muslim. Uh, that's not always the way the game is played on the other side. But it's interesting. It says that, uh, notice in verse 38, there was an inscription above the cross, and this is from uh, the Passion of the Christ, you can see that uh, that the piece of wood with uh, uh, Latin, Greek, and Aramaic there. Uh, but uh, it's funny because you talk about the inscription over the cross. I'm convinced that's many people's favorite Bible contradiction. Okay, uh, because what you're going to hear, and they're right, is you can't trust the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They, they don't get anything right. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have four different wordings for the inscription over the cross. And if they can't get that right, Laura, how are they going to get the big stuff right? Well, that's the bad news. The good news is, the bad news isn't really bad news because the wording recorded is different, but it's not divergent. Let me show you what I mean. Here's the claim, including my people who have never read the four Gospels. Uh, the four Gospels have different wording for the inscription over the cross. Here's what you got. Uh, Matthew says, the inscription reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark says, the king of the Jews. Luke just told us, it says, this is the king of the Jews. And John says, the inscription affirmed, Jesus, the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Now, let me submit to you, those are not necessarily contradictory. Uh, if one of the four said, this is George of Greece, the prince of the Gentiles, then we have a problem. They don't say that. I would suggest these are all accurate partial accounts, and I would suspect no Greek or Hebrew required that the entirety of the inscription said, this is Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews, right? And in fact, uh, J. Warner Wallace, who is a uh, cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles County, until 20 years ago he was an atheist, he's come to faith and he's written a lot of interesting books about the way the four Gospels mesh like four witnesses to any traumatic event or any major event, always tend to mesh if they're 
accurately recounting what they saw. You you won't get four verbatim exact testimonies. You'll get four different partial accounts that readily harmonize, and that's what you've got in the Gospels. So they're different. You're right, but they're not divergent. They're partial accounts of the real thing. So the bad news isn't really bad news because the wording is different, not divergent. All four Gospels give accurate but partial accounts readily harmonized with no Greek or Hebrew required. Okay, that's the humility of Jesus. Now read, let's read about uh, the love of Jesus. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals, and again, uh, I'm going to call this guy a terrorist and a murderer. We know he was a thief. Well, probably what happened was, the only reason they were being crucified is because they've been found of, of being they've found guilty of revolting, of being rebels, violent rebels against Roman authority. The Romans had occupied the region for almost 100 years at this point. And probably what happened was these guys are thieves because they probably killed a Roman tax collector or two and stole all the money as part of their rebellion against Rome. Or maybe they broke into a a Roman army uh, uh, armory and stole some weapons and had to kill the sentry on the way in or way out. So they are thieves, and they are criminals, and they've broken all Ten Commandments uh, for sure, but what they really are are rebels against Roman authority. So let me kind of transliterate it that way, or, or, or uh, let's say paraphrase it that way. One of the terrorists, one of the murderous terrorists, who also was a thief, who was hanged there, was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Didn't you claim to be the Savior of the world? Save yourself and save us while you're doing it. But the other answered, rebuking him and said, the other murderous terrorist, uh, don't you even fear God? It's one thing when people have no fear of God, uh, they end up having no fear of man, which is kind of modern America, which is a problem because no amount of government funding is going to fix that. It's a heart problem. But the other answered and said, don't you even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we've received what we deserve. I mean, we are murderous rebels. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is obviously a farce that he would be here with us. And so this same thief on the cross, the, the terrorist who is open to Jesus, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus is a word that means God's Savior. So God's Savior, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, Jesus doesn't look like the Son of God hanging on that cross. He's been beaten to a pulp. He's bleeding. He's in extreme torture. And he doesn't look. You've got to have the eyes of faith to think he's in charge of any kind of kingdom at all at that point. But with the eyes of faith, the uh, thief on the cross, the murderous terrorist on the cross is basically saying, Hey, Jesus, uh, I, I'm estranged from God, and I can do nothing to fix it, but I think you can, and I want you to. That sounds like, uh, what do they call that? Uh, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia to me. We've got a theologian in the room, right, Brent? You know what that means. All the Latin terms for saving faith. That's all he says. Now, I want you to notice, uh, he doesn't make any promises to Jesus. I'll stop smoking, you know, if you'll do this. He doesn't say, I'll sign a card, I'll walk an aisle. Uh, if you just play just as I am 17 times, maybe I'll think about it. And by the way, just as I am is a great, great hymn. But once you start playing it 17 times, you may get more psychological dynamics than spiritual dynamics. But 
you get people to sign cards, and so you've got numbers there to report to people. And it's not necessarily actually happening. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, boy, I wish you'd talked to me last week. You know, if you'd talked to me last week, you know, we could have taken you to the, to the rabbi, and we could have gone and catechized you and baptized you, and, and you could have signed a card and joined something or quit something or given us something, uh, put some money in the plate. Uh, in this response from a man who's got nothing to give but clearly is has been a horrific person, Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I call that immediate assurance of salvation. I mean, this salvation by grace is so great that you can, from the moment of saving faith, based on the word of God, know you're good with God. And you don't have to be a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a member of an independent Bible church uh, of any particular variety. This works for all colors, countries, and creeds. There's only one race, the human race, and all of us need a Savior. And you're seeing the amazing grace dynamics of salvation here. Grace is unmerited favor. You know, uh, most of the world religions, all the world religions, and and unfortunately some parts of Christianity want to put a lot of human merit in the process somewhere as the the root of salvation. And, you know, Galatians, Paul talks about, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, which is kind of, Analogous to saying you don't have to be baptized to be saved or catechized or ordained or dedicated. You don't need a particular denomination. You need to have faith in the only one who can give you eternal life because he died for your sins and rose again. And in fact, in Galatians 2.21, we read something like this. If righteousness, the righteousness you need, Chris, to go to heaven when you die, comes by the law, comes by a list of rules, comes by your own personal merit, then why did God send Jesus to die if anybody could earn it on their own? You know, the reason Christ died was it's the only way it could work because none of us can possibly earn salvation ourselves. Uh, later in that same book, Paul says, if a law, if a set of rules and regulations or religion could be given that would impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. And if it's based on the law, then Christ died needlessly. So that's a problem there. So that's always the big issue, you know. Uh, all the world religions basically are saying, reach up to God or gods and their version of heaven, and if you grab it right and hold on enough and you're a good enough Hindu or Buddhist or whatever you are, maybe you'll make whatever they're offering you. It's only Christianity that has God coming down in our place as the God-man Savior who pays the sin debt in our place. I have nothing to add to that, neither do you and who will give it to you the moment you trust him for it. Saving faith is a rational act, but it's not a meritorious work. It's described in places like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, as the gift of God. Salvation is, lest any man should brag about it. My favorite one uh, is Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Can you think of any place in the Bible where a very ungodly person is given immediate assurance of salvation as soon as he believes in Jesus. Can you think of any place, like maybe in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, maybe Luke somewhere? That's what you're seeing. You're seeing Romans 4, 5 played out on this miserable stage with these tortured guys, both of whom probably deserve everything and more they're getting. And the guy screams out to Jesus and probably just whispers it because he's getting dehydrated. Jesus Remember me when you come in your kingdom. I want to go to heaven. 
I can't do it myself. I think you can and I want you to. I mean, salvation would have to be totally of grace if by simple faith in Jesus, God would give you eternal life. You know, our sins on Christ and judge his righteousness given to us when we believe. But to the one who doesn't work, doesn't try to stack up the circumcision, baptism, catechism, but the one who does not work, but who believes, trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, who's the only one who does that? Be Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Good works has nothing to do with your reception of salvation, but it is an important effect of your salvation. Those circles meet right at the cross, right on the tangent there with no overlap or artificial separation. Uh, And that's really our uh, invitation to you. Uh, We are now going to play 17 verses of Just As I Am. Now, all that stuff, I think Charles Finney invented most of that about 200 years ago. And I'm pretty sure God was saving people prior to the 1830s. And I'm quite sure of that, including right here. Uh, but, you know, in, uh, saving faith is is not just mental assent to facts about Jesus. It's not a passive thing. It's active, receptive trust that the Spirit allows you to see this and do this. Uh, and uh, John one twelve, I like, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. And this thief was saved just like you can be saved today. Or Jesus, I'm a sinner. You don't think you're a sinner? You think that's uh, politically incorrect? You ever told a lie? Anybody, anybody here never told a lie? If you raise your hand, you'll lie about, you're lying about that. Yeah. You ever lusted at someone you're not married to? Mm. Uh, you ever stole anything? Mm. You ever used God's name in vain? Boom! Out of here! You know, that's all it takes. One sin and your attempt to earn your way to heaven is like a stained glass window. You know, one, one little hole in it, the whole thing collapses. As sinners, Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. Uh, you can be saved as easy as Martin Luther said. John 3.16 is the gospel in a verse. For God the Father loved the world so much, he sent the Son, went to the cross, died for your sin debt, rose again, that whosoever believeth in him, and Brent will tell you it's an articular present active participle there. It doesn't say whosoever. It says all of the ones who believe in him shall not perish like a fire, but have present tense everlasting life and that's what this guy received as soon as he expressed saving faith and that's why jesus says today you'll be with me in paradise and there's nothing special about him except he was especially bad (laughs) and you can have that gift right where you sit through faith in jesus christ let's look at the work of christ verse 44 through 49 now it was about the sixth hour we're three hours into the crucifixion but the atonement begins and goes from the sixth hour noon Till just before 3 p.m., that was about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land. And people, I think, uh, I think uh, the Passion of the Christ seems to think there was a solar eclipse there, but solar eclipses only last a couple of minutes, not three hours. But I've lived in Oklahoma, and James and I can tell you, uh, when, sometimes you get a perfect storm in, in Oklahoma, and we've got Fort Sill here, and that's where they t- train them how to shoot artillery. Big artillery guns. And there have been a couple of times we've had like three o'clock in the afternoon, a really dense thunderstorm come in and the clouds are black and the light goes away and it's almost like dark and the parking light lights come on. And, uh, then you start hearing coincidentally, they're shooting artillery pieces 30 miles away, which makes the windows rattle, which is probably one reason we have door problems because those windows have been moving around for 20 years. 
And it can happen. It happens in Oklahoma. It happened that day. This was a, a, a super normal timing on the darkness, but this wasn't necessarily a three-hour solar eclipse. Uh, but, yeah, so you see the setting. Uh, because the sun was obscured by clouds, not necessarily by the uh, shadow of the moon. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, the temple was this central sanctuary God had established through the books of Moses and the two major parts of the actual building were the holy place and the holy of holies, and there was a veil or a curtain between those two parts of the building, and that curtain uh, represented the separation that sin affects between God and man. And Jesus is dying to eliminate that separation. And so I think Matthew says that the, the veil wasn't just torn in two, but torn from top to bottom. This wasn't a human being tearing it. This was an angel of the force of God himself tearing it as a visual aid to the priests. They would have been the ones who knew about that, but that symbolism is very important. And Jesus, at the end of this three-hour period from noon to three, when the sins of the world are put on him and judged, cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, the other, a couple of the Gospels mention that Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that sounds almost like he's having an existential crisis, but in fact... Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani is the first line of Psalm 22, written about a thousand years before, which talks about the sacrificial death of the Messiah. And in the same way, if I was going to speak uh, on the 4th of July and say four score and seven years ago, you'd say, hey, he's starting with a citation of the Gettysburg Address to get us in the patriotic mood. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first line of Psalm 22, and every Jewish mind in that area would have known exactly he's citing Psalm 22 as a commentary on what he's doing here. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of Psalm 22. It's a rhetorical question, not a question of despair. Uh, verse 47. Now, when the centurion who's in charge of the Roman execution squad saw what had happened, the entirety of the six-hour crucifixion climaxed by the last three hours, and now Jesus uh, very regally uh, committing his spirit as he dies. His spirit leaves the body. Uh, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who had come together for the spectacle when they observed what had happened began to return, beating their breasts. Very emotional reaction. Some of them probably came to faith eventually. Probably many of them did not. Having an emotional reaction about Jesus isn't the same thing as active, receptive trust in Jesus. And all his acquaintances and the women who had accompanied Jesus from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Boom. Uh, this is an attempt to break that thing down, just a schematic. The crucifixion goes from, yeah, from nine to three, but we're talking about the last part of that, the last half is when the atonement actually happens. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this this is all uh, anticipated and prophesied in the Old Testament. If this pulpit represents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the part of the Bible written before he came is called the Old Testament. The part of the Bible written after he came to explain it all is called the New Testament. And the Old Testament has very specific prophecies about who the Messiah would be and where he'd come from and when he'd do his thing and what he'd do and why he did it. And Isaiah 53 is probably the crown jewel of all that, written about 700 B.C., validated by Dead Sea Scroll evidence. 
But here's the thing. That's the Old Testament prophecy fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in his first coming. We also have a lot of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy that talks about his second coming. And uh, there actually was debate among the rabbis about how you fit all that together. But in fact, we've got one Messiah with two comings. He comes the first time as the Lamb, as the Passover sacrifice for our sins, who come a second time to climax history on God's terms. And it's coming. You might say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. Well, if this is the life of Christ again, you know, the seminal promises about the Messiah in detail start with a guy named Abraham, who's living in Iraq initially and goes to Israel. But he's about 2,000 B.C. And it takes 2,000 years for the first set of promises about the first advent of the Messiah to take place. Now we're a little around 2,000 years after that first set. And so as symmetrically as God likes to be, I wouldn't be surprised if we're pretty close to the end, right? And when you've got, it's not just the North Koreans. I mean, the Pakistanis have nukes. And they've had them for a long time. And fortunately, the military junta that runs that place won't allow bad guys to get them. But what happens if they get whacked? You know what? I mean, Pakistan has been a haven for the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, all kinds of people like that over the years. They get their hands on nukes. You're going to have to have the second coming pretty quick probably, right? Because Jesus doesn't come back to a cinder burning. You know, he, uh, it's pretty rough. You read book of Revelation and you see what looked like maybe nuclear exchanges in that book. But uh, the best is yet to come. Okay, Let's talk about the burial of Jesus now. Look at verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, a good and righteous man, uh, he had not consented to the Sanhedrin's plan to turn Jesus over to Pontius as a rebel, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, who in fact was a believer, John says, but a secret one for fear of the Jews in chapter 19. This man came to Pilate after the death of Christ and asked for the body to give it a decent burial. And he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, laid it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever laid. He had this brand new family tomb apparently set up. Nobody had used it. It would have been mega expensive at the time. Uh, Isaiah prophesies the Messiah would be killed with the penniless, dangerous people, but he would be buried along with a rich man, meaning at the auspices of a rich man. Again, this is being prophesied and fulfilled. Uh, it was the preparation day, uh, Friday the day before Sabbath, and as the sun goes down on Friday, you can't do any work. So the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed, saw the tomb and how the body was laid. So they did some initial preparations, but they're not done preparing the body for burial, but they've got to stop because it's about to be Sabbath time. Then they returned, prepared spices and perfume, and on the Sabbath, Saturday, after the Friday, they rested, but they're going to come back Sunday and finish the job. Now, uh, many of you have heard me say it, and I hope I don't uh, step on the punchline like I do some some years, but, you know, the, a joke that I like to share, a joke alert. When your, job, when your jokes are so bad, you have to have a joke alert. You know, it's a federal regulation. They decided that a couple of years ago. We have to warn you about these things. But uh, when, when some skeptics in then and now will say, well, why would this rich, powerful guy give Jesus his tomb, this much less brand-new tomb, brand-family tomb, once a non-family member's in there, they're not going to be able to, be able to use it. But the joke is, uh, on Saturday after the crucifixion, after the initial burial, uh, one of Joseph's good friends from the Sanhedrin said, why would you give that $100,000 tomb to that penniless, you know, trouble-causing Galilean? And Joseph said, 
No big deal. He's only going to need it for three days. Thank you for honoring me and humoring me. I appreciate that. Very nice of you. Okay, let's get to the climax. Uh, you know, the one good thing about Easter week as a preacher, you don't have to spend a lot of time deciding what theme you're going to touch on. You know, I mean, you've got to end up with the resurrection. And it's, it's a pleasure to do that, obviously. Let's read this from uh, the New American Standard Bible. So we got crucifixion on Friday, the Sabbath day. They can't work. They can't finish the burial. But on the first day, Sunday, the Sunday after the Jewish Passover, 33 A.D., first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, that is the women with the spices, bring the spices that they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and had been sealed by the Roman authorities because there was a rumor the disciples might steal the body and pretend like he'd been resurrected. So they got it guarded. But the other Gospels tell you details about how that got circumvented. But when they entered, because the stones moved away from the door, uh, they couldn't find the body. It's not in there. Uh, while they were perplexed, the women, that is, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Now, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. The Bible means what it means by what it says, the way it says it. Okay? So when it says sunrise, it's not talking about uh, astronomy or science. He's talking about it looks like the sun's going up. Here, you've got two angels here that look like two young men. This is called phenomenological language. This is going to describe the way it looks. And assume you're smart enough to figure out what they mean. Behold, two men, angels who look like young men, look like Jamie and Jonathan. And we got one, we got one of the angels here today, you know, close personal friend of mine. Two men, young men, not old men, uh, Suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. These aren't just men, they're angels, and he assumes you can figure that out. And as the women were terrified, every time people see angels in the Bible, the first reaction is stark terror, because these aren't little babies with chubby little wings like the Renaissance paintings had. These are look like God's linebackers. They're tough looking. Uh, when they were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He told you that about eight times you know, in the last two weeks. But in the panic, they forgot. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful man, be crucified so he can be the Savior and bear our sins on the third day rise again? And they say, oh, yeah, he did say that. He was serious, you know. We, let's take it literally. And uh, so they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven. I thought we had twelve apostles, Gene. Why do we have only eleven? We had a defector who was never really a believer at all. Uh, Judas Iscariot, and then all the rest. Now, they were Mary Magdalene. She's got a, a troubled background. Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these things appeared to them as nonsense. They didn't initially even believe it. We're talking about the apostles here. But Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stoop, stooping and looking in. He saw only the linen wrappings and went away to his home. Uh, it's interesting, over the last 25 years, most, even of the most skeptical New Testament scholars, will no longer deny the resurrection the way they once did. Uh, they, they look at the evidence of the early church just blowing up in a good sense, going all over the Mediterranean basin within a couple of decades, uh, and they look at the people, the Gospels credit as being the primary initial witnesses, and they say, you know what, uh, what did, we, what did we read about the the uh, beginning of the Gospel of Luke? You know, he says, because many people have already written accounts of the life of Jesus, including Matthew and Mark. 
Luke, in about 60 A.D., this is happening in 33, said, I decided to write something down too. Now, I've investigated what I've got, and I've interviewed people, and he emphasizes, more than anybody, that the first witnesses to the evidence of the resurrection were all women. And he's writing in 60 A.D., when the church is having all kinds of issues they're dealing with, uh, and, you know, People say, well, he's writing, making this stuff up to make uh, the church work better. No, he's not. He's recording what actually happened and mentioning that women were the primary witnesses does you no good culturally in Luke's day. This isn't from Scripture, but based on Roman and Jewish law. And Anthony, we're talking about rabbinic Judaism as opposed to Hebrew religion here, you know, Talmud. Uh, women were not considered to be credible as legal witnesses in a courtroom. So if you're making it up anyway in 60 A.D., because you know the resurrection didn't really happen, why would you have people who, according to the system, according to the man, aren't qualified to give legal testimony? The only reason you record this is that this is what happened. And so anymore, even people like Bart Ehrman, he doesn't say the disciples made it up or they stole the body. He'll say the disciples really believed something happened. They really believed something like the resurrection happened. Now, of course, we're 21st century people. We know that doesn't happen. But they really believed it. And then all went and died for it. And they're certainly not making up these are the primary witnesses. If they're just making stuff up, they'd have Joseph of Arimathea and some other, make up some other members of the Sanhedrin who are dead now, say they were the first witnesses. So you've kind of got a motley crew, you might say. And I'm not talking about the rock band who were the first witnesses. There's no reason to make that up. Okay? Uh, let's go to the empty tomb. Uh, and again... Uh, Church, of the, Church of the Holy Sepulchre is one possible location. You can go there. But this is called Gordon's Calvary. And that's actually a street sign in uh, in Jerusalem. you got the Hebrew, the, Aramaic, or the Arabic, and then the English. But there's, there's a picture of the empty tomb. There's a picture of our tour group. And uh, I don't know if you were there, this is interesting. Interesting to me, and I'm, I've got two more minutes. So uh, there's Bonnie Aldridge. Right? Uh, there's the guy from West Virginia and his brother. Uh, this guy was uh, kind of whatever his big brother told him he was supposed to do on that trip, and his name was was uh, Mark. So, uh, Jamie, remember what this guy's name was? Whatever it was, this guy just barked orders at Mark the entire trip. He's like, Mark, take a picture! Mark, take a picture of that! I mean, did that? Am I making it up? He's, he, Mark, take a picture of that! And so, Mark, grab the camera, take a picture. Mark, take a picture of that. And then if Mark, anticipating he's going to get barked at, was already taking pictures, he'd say, Mark, why are you taking a picture of that? I mean, that's, he literally said that. You know, these are grown people. Uh, they actually saw about our tour on the uh, Friendly Planet website, and they just kind of showed up, you know, and boom. Now, Tom, I know you remember this. There's my man Tom Robertson there. There's Bonnie. There's my first wife, Debbie. There's Jean. Talking about real people, real places, real events here, people. There's Julie. Julie, as she walking in. Uh, I love this because this is me taking a picture of Jonathan, taking a picture of Jamie, as Julie and Ron about to go into the empty tomb. So it's, it's fun. And there, uh, there's me again. So we've seen the humility of Jesus, the love of Jesus, giving that guy immediate assurance of salvation, the work of Jesus on the cross, the burial, the resurrection. Let's go back to where we started as we stopped. Uh, the absolute irreducible minimum you need to know, everybody needs to know about uh, Easter is the fact that Christ died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. 
And because Christ died for our sins, for your sins and my sins, you and I don't have to die in our sin. Uh, this is critical for everybody because nobody is really ready to live and still, until he or she is really ready to die. And the only way you can be ready to die is to embrace the resurrected one. Jesus died for our sins. He's the issue and issuer of eternal life as the resurrected Lord. And as he himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even when he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, please etch into our consciousness the reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, For those who have not before trusted him and him alone for salvation, open their eyes to see, convince them of sin, they got it, righteousness, they need it, judgment, it's coming, and let them see in the person and work of Christ all they need for eternal salvation. For the rest of us who are believers, Father, let uh, us recenter our entire pie chart of our life on the person and the work of Jesus Christ that you might be glorified with us and we might... uh, be right where you want us to be spiritually. Let this not just be another Easter Sunday celebration complete with baskets, bonnets, and Easter eggs. Let it be a a time to retool and rethink and reorient. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.